Good morning, City Light. Good morning. All right. How's everything going? Good. Good. You guys are lively this morning, which that's what I like to hear. Um, my, as Doug said, my name is Chuck, and I'm one of the pa- one of the, I'm not one of the pastors. Not one of the pastors, but I get the privilege of serving on the advisory team, as he mentioned. Um, it's me and and Willie and Doug and Eric and then Steve Deal over at Sherwood, uh, Chris Haruska. Uh, so we, that's the advisory team that we get to, uh, you know, lead with. And um, really what we do is we get together and we pray. Um, we talk about vision for the future and we figure out ways that we can better lead and be more effective in reaching each other, reaching others. Um, we believe that what is going on here in Council Bluffs is, in Omaha, is a movement of God. And we are trying to just kind of stay out of the way and let God do his thing. Um, this is the first time in my life that I have ever even heard of a church that is less than five years old that has planted five other churches in the same city. Rarely does a church want to plant a church in the same city because of competition and jealousy and whatever. But City Light Omaha has planted five churches in the same metro area, and that's the first time in my life I've ever been able to experience that. Uh, and in case you missed it last week, uh, we announced that we are going to be planting, or City Light Omaha is going to be planting City Light Exarbon and, uh, sometime probably next year. And so God is moving, and we want to, uh, we get to come along for the ride. So much of what I pray uh, for our church is to help me, Lord, not to mess it up. I just don't want to be part of, the, of the, so the, the problem of messing it up. So let me tell you a little bit about me. I'm married to Jen. My wife is sitting right down here in the third row. She's awesome. Um, we've known each other for 26 years, and we've been married for o- over 24 of those years. We have three adult children, Brittany, who is 23. She lives in Lincoln. She's part of the new City Light Lincoln Church that's there, and, um, you know, it's crazy. But she actually moved to be a part of that. She lived in Omaha, was part of City Light Midtown, had a job. And whenever they announced Lincoln, she's like, Mom, Dad, I think I want to go. And we're like, I think you're whatever you want to do, you know. <laughs> you're settled, but whatever you want to do. But, folks, she picked up and she moved to, uh, to go be a part of that church. Um, we have Kyle, who's 20. He is an intern over at City Light Omaha, and our youngest Cole, our youngest son is Cole, and he's a part of our church here in Council Bluffs. And can I just tell you that I love being a husband and a father? Um, seriously, after my relationship with Christ, uh, those two roles provide me the most joy um, and satisfaction in my life. I love coming home. I mean, Jen and I, we've had our ups and downs. Um, but we've always been and we've always realized that we're in this thing for the long haul. Um, Our kids, they've had situations go on where they've kept us up at night, but we rejoice that each of them are chasing after Jesus. So I love being a dad and a a husband. So let me ask you, uh, do you have rules in your house? Do you have any rules that you might set down in your house? I bet if we went around this room um, though they may be a little bit different, I bet we would all have rules that we impose upon our kids 
Or maybe we could look back and we could remember rules that our parents imposed upon us, right? I remember as a kid, I was probably 12 or 13 years old. One of the things I really liked to do was ride my bike. Um, I like to go out and just just ride all day long. And my dad, uh, who uh, was super cheap, wouldn't buy me a brand new bike. He ended up finding this really cool 12-speed um, at a garage sale for five dollars. The tires and the wheels were were all rusted. The tires were flat and rotten. And he took some steel wool and polished up the wheels, put new tires on it, greased it up, cleaned it up, and gave me what looked like a brand new. 12-speed bicycle. And uh, what my buddy and I, Duke, we would would go and we would just ride our bikes everywhere. In the summer, we would would leave about 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning and we'd not get back until almost dark in the evening. We would literally be gone for hours. One of the rules that my parents had for me when I was out riding bikes was was I had to call, call home every couple hours. Um, and this was well before the days of cell phones, and so we would be gone for, for hours, and every couple hours I would have to find this thing called a payphone. And for those of you who are under 30, that's this big metal box, and it's on a pole, and if you put money in it and push these square buttons in the right sequence, you can get somebody on the other line. And so what we would have to do is, is call uh, every couple hours and let my mom and dad know that we were going to be okay. It was always a pain and it was rarely convenient, but that's how things rolled in my house. Um, fast forward quite a few years and our kids were getting to the age where they were um, hanging out with friends or maybe they were driving and um, they were out of my bubble of protection. I could no longer protect them from the things that were, uh, were going to hurt them. And so I began to understand why my parents wanted me to check in. It was because they were concerned for my safety. They valued me to the point that they wanted to know if I was okay. They loved me, so they came up with a rule that allowed me to have a lot of freedom, but that also satisfied their concerns. This, that's one rule, one example of how my house worked growing up. Now, this morning, we're going to be looking at God's law. And as we consider his law, of which the Ten Commandments that Doug read are part of, I've got one goal, one goal. I want you to understand that God gave his law to his people for his glory and for our good. That's it. That's my one point that I want to get across this morning. God gave his law to his people for his glory and for our good. So let me set, uh, set the stage a little bit before we get into the law of God. The book of Exodus opens up with the people of God having experienced oppression and bondage for a very long time. God raises up Moses and Moses goes to Pharaoh, right? To, uh, and he demands that he let his people go. Um, Pharaoh refuses. Plagues are unleashed. Pharaoh still refuses until we see the plague, uh, the final plague of death of the firstborn that convinces Pharaoh to let God's people go. The people of God walk through the Red Sea on dry land. 
Pharaoh reneges on his promise to let the people of Israel go, and the Egyptians pursue the nation of Israel and are ultimately drowned in the Red Sea when it closes up on them. The people of God are being led by this cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night, and now they find themselves at the base of this mountain. It's called Mount Sinai, and this brings us to our text that we're going to look at this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible close to you, maybe underneath the seat in front of you. It's a white Bible. Um, just go ahead and open up your Bibles, open, open up your app. We're going to be looking at Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. Exodus 19, verse 1 through 6. I'll give you a minute to get there. Beginning in verse number 1. It says, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the, into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God bless the reading of his word. So verse 1 of chapter 19 tells us that the people of God come to this mountain three months after they had crossed over the Red Sea. So it's been some time. Moses goes up to the mountain to pray, and God begins to speak to Moses, and he gives him a message to bring to the people. God reminds his people that he saved them, and, that he makes, and then he makes three conditional promises. The first is, you will be my treasured possession. See what it says there? Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. I saved you, how I bore you on eagles' wings. And then he says, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples in verse number five. This means that God will have a unique or special relationship with his people. He is going to care for them differently. It's the difference between caring for your own children and maybe caring for your neighbor's kids. Now, when Jen and I were dating way back in 1991, um, her aunt and uncle, who were actually probably our age now, uh, were getting ready to have a baby. So they were kind of having a baby late in life. And they did this really weird thing that nobody was doing at the time, but they had their, their baby with a midwife in their own house, in their own bedroom. So it was kind of a, kind of a, new, a new thing. And um, it was weird. We went over to the house, and it's like, everybody just come in. You know, it's like you're watch, turning on Netflix now and, and watching Netflix. But uh, everybody just kind of went in and, and, and watched Aunt Donna have this, have this baby. And uh, uh, her, her, her cousin's name was Mike. It was a crazy experience. I'll never forget it. And uh, Mike decided that it was time to come, and Aunt Donna went in labor, and little Mikey was born. That's what I called him. I remember thinking that, oh, 
this is, this is pretty cool. This is pretty neat. Um, this baby's cute. I mean, I'm like 20 years old, 21 years old. This is, uh, this is pretty neat. Um, everything kind of worked out, so I'm happy that everybody was safe and the baby was healthy and all this kind of stuff. But two years later, you fast forward, and my emotions were totally different. This time, it wasn't my girlfriend's aunt that was having a baby. It was my wife. And it wasn't my wife's cousin being born. It was my daughter. And I remember when Brittany was born, it was different. It was different than watching Mikey being born. It was very, very special. Um, they placed, after she was born, they, they gave her to Jen and, and laid her on Jen's chest for a while. And then it wasn't too much longer after that that they handed her to me while I was, um, while they were, you know, dealing with Jen and getting her cleaned up or whatever they did. Um, but I remember, I remember holding her like it was yesterday. There was a, a window right here. The bed was right there. We also went through a midwife. And um, little Brittany was looking up at her dad. And I remember, this is special. This is different. And I treasured her. I treasured her. I remember holding her and looking into her eyes and thinking, this is my precious little girl. The same was true when, when Kyle and Cole were born. I held them and looked at them. And I remember this is, this is a special moment. Enjoy this moment because this is your precious child. Um, there's a unique feeling that a father has for his children. And while I treasure Jen's cousin, Mike, right, and the birth of my friend's children even today, while I treasure those things, it's not the same that I have for my children. God is simply saying here, when he says, you are my treasured possession, he's simply saying here that he is going to care for his people like a dad would care for his children. Can you imagine the impact that this would have on these people? These people haven't been cared for for a really, really long time. God literally has been silent up until the point of this exodus. They've been, these people have been under oppression and slavery for their entire lives. The only stories that they've heard from grandma and grandpa, they weren't stories of independence. They were stories of how terrible their taskmaster was or how their taskmaster treated them that day. The idea of a treasured possession was probably pretty foreign to them. But now God is telling them, you will be my treasured possession. The second thing that God says there in chapter 19, those verses that we read, is that you will be my representatives on this earth. Verse 6 actually says you will be a kingdom of priests. A priest is a go-between or a representative. So what God is telling Moses here is that you need to tell the people that from now on, I want you to know that you represent me to all other nations. You represent me. What people will know about me will be communicated by you. In some degree, it's like kind of maybe what we do for work, right? Um, the only thing you know about my employer, Bat Logistics, is what I tell you. I'm their representative to you. In many ways, I represent Bat Logistics to all of you. You, in turn, represent 
Mid-American Energy, Council Bluff School District, Jet Links, whatever job you have, you represent that employer or that company to me. Hy-Vee, whatever it is. God is telling Moses to tell the people that they will represent him to all other nations from now on. What the nations know about God will come through them. They will communicate his character to the world. Wow. I mean, can you imagine the, the weight of that responsibility? This people will be my representative to the entire world forever. That is what these people are facing. The third promise is that you will be a holy nation. What do you think of when you think of the word holy? It's an interesting word. My mind goes directly to perfection or an idea of being without sin. Holy, perfection, without sin. Um, To be holy is to be without sin. That's my default. But that has a big problem because what we see in Scripture over and over is we're called to be holy. We're called to be a holy uh, nation. So why would Scripture tell us to be something that we can't really attain. I think my mind goes in that direction because the only thing that I've ever known to be holy is God. And God is without sin. Therefore, to be holy is to be without sin. I like the way, I mean, when I began struggling with this and some of the different things, I started reading a little bit more about it. And there's a great theologian, pastor uh, up in the Twin Cities. His name is John Piper. And I like the way that John Piper describes God's holiness. Listen to this. He says, in the end, God is holy in that he is God and not man. Sounds profound, doesn't it? I mean, I could have come up with that. He is incomparable. That's a little bit better. His holiness is, is his utterly unique divine essence. It determines all that he is and does and is determined by no one. His holiness is what he is as God, which no one else is or ever will be. Call it his majesty, his divinity, his greatness, his value as the pearl of great price. So God is holy because he is something completely different than anything else in comparison. So a better way for me to understand the holiness of God is that he is uniquely different than anything I have ever experienced, which includes his perfection, but it isn't limited to that. Does that make sense? Let me read that again. A better way for me to understand the holiness of God is that he is uniquely different than anything else I have ever experienced, which includes his perfection, but isn't limited to that. And so that changes my perspective on what it means for me to be holy. So when 1 Peter says, be holy for I am holy, it's telling me to be something completely different than what this world knows. Through Christ, I I can do that. I can be different than what this world knows. So in our text that we're looking at in Exodus chapter 19, the promise that is given to God's people is that they will be a holy nation. And what it's saying there is that they are going to be a nation unlike any other nation on the planet. They're going to be uniquely different from the rest of the nations of the world. 
So wow, what a series of promises, right? You're going to be my treasured possession. You're my representatives. And you're going to be this uniquely different nation. You're going to be a holy nation. God tells them that they're going to be a treasured people and the representatives on this earth, and they're going to be uniquely different from any other nation in the world that has ever known or ever will be known. But I said earlier that these promises are conditional, right? So I'm not sure if you caught it or not, but God is speaking here on the mountain to Moses and not the people. Moses takes this message to the people, and the people must choose if this is what they want. So in chapter 19, verse number 8, it says, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken of, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Do you get what, do you get what just happened? I mean, these people, the people of God were reminded how God saved them. Moses is bringing the message of how God saved them. They were told of his promises And I imagine that their hearts were probably stirred a bit and their hopes were revived. And with great enthusiasm and with great faith, they said, I want in. I want to be part of this. This is something I want to be a part of. I want to participate. Where do I sign up for that? So it is with this backdrop of faith and hope that the people have just expressed that a covenant is made and God begins to instruct his people on how his promises are going to be fulfilled in their life. And so we could spend weeks literally on talking about the different parts of the law. We could spend weeks talking about how that morally, that the law makes this wandering nation uniquely different than the surrounding nations We could go into law and we could see how their dietary laws that they were to follow were actually going to allow them to be more healthy and prosperous than those in the land. You could see how that God communicates his character through some of the ceremonial laws. But the overarching theme for all of this is that God is communicating with his people and his people obey and it brings God glory. So the law is less like this dark cloud that is hovering over them. And it's more like, um, and it's, it's less like this dark cloud that is hovering over the people of God, ready to strike them with like lightning at the moment that they disobey. And it's more like the food that they get to eat that sustains them and gives them energy throughout the day. I remember that... Um, you may remember I mentioned that I love being a, a dad and a father. And over the years, Jen and I, we've really, uh, we tried hard to, you know, order our home in a particular way. So we had rules. We had, you know, codes of conduct, uh, whatever you want to call them. We had a way that we wanted our house to run, and uh, we both agreed on, on those ways. Um, there weren't a lot of rules, but there were some rules. And so some of those rules were in consideration for our kids' safety. For instance, we told our kids that they couldn't play in the street, right? That's not a good idea. Don't go play in the street. Why is that important? It's important because we didn't want them to get hit by a car, right? Common sense. Some rules were kind of meant for a bigger picture. Um, We told them that the only time that they could say God's name was if they were talking to him or talking about him. 
Why? Because we wanted wanted them to have respect for God and for his name. One way to teach them, or one way to teach that was to teach them that his name was different than any other name um, that is uh, that is around, and not just to use it flippantly. So now, Jen and I had a couple things that we could do. We could um, we could enforce these rules a couple of different ways. We could sit back and wait for them to run into the street, right? Go snatch them up out of the street and say, "What are you doing?" Didn't I tell you not to go in the street? Going into the street will get you killed. Don't go in the street. How can you be that stupid? Don't go in the street. Send them back into the yard and do it that way. Or um, we could sit around and and as we just listen to them talk and we're not really engaging them, um, and the moment that they use God's name in a way that it shouldn't be used, um, we could get up. Didn't we tell you? We told you not to use God's name that way. Are you talking to him? No. Are you talking about him? Nope. Then don't use God's name. How could you be that way? We could have done those types of things. Or what we could have done, which is what we did, is we could play with them in the yard and, uh, and have them enjoy being around their mom and dad. And therefore, they would rather be where we are than be in the street. And the street, going in the street doesn't even become a temptation, Right? We could pray with them or we could talk with them about God or they could hear us talking with our friends about God. And the only way, the only time that they hear God's name being used is when we're talking to him or talking about him. So those are some of the ways that we enforced our rules. We participated with them. So our rules then aren't something that they are following or something that they are doing because uh, they're going to get beat up or they're going to get uh, humiliated. It's because they have a relationship with their mom and dad. That's what's, that's what's going on here. That's what I want you to, to understand here as we look at the, the nation of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai. Is God is telling them, you are mine. You are my treasured possession. You are my representatives. You are a holy nation. I am in this with you. I'm not removed from you, and I have a purpose in what I am doing. So I want you to conduct yourself in this way. That's what God is getting across here. So all is good, right? Huh? Nothing bad ever happens from this point on. God's law is obeyed joyfully. There's never any disobedience. The guy gets the girl, and they ride off into the sunset. End of story. No. We know better than that. There were two chapters into a, a book that's 66 chapters, so there's a whole lot of story left. So what happens? I'll tell you what happens. The people of God fail is what happens. They fail. And yet again, God proves to be a God of forgiveness and mercy. Moses goes back up on the mountain to hear from God and when he comes down, the people are worshiping a golden calf. I mean, they failed miserably. He's not up there very long, and he comes back down, and they're worshiping a golden calf. And what was the first commandment? You can talk back if you want. Yeah, don't worship any other god. Well, they just failed that, that commandment miserably. Now, how do you like that for failure? While there are consequences for their disobedience, there were consequences there 
God ultimately shows mercy and forgives his people. Let's turn over to Exodus chapter 34. Look in verse number 6 and 7. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Verse number 10, And, and he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as not have been created, in all the world or on any nation, and all the people among whom you are, you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So God forgives his people. But what happens is for most of the, most of the rest of the Old Testament, you see this pattern over and over and over again. You see the pattern that God forgives The people respond with joy and faithfulness. The people sin. God forgives. The people respond with joy and faithfulness. People sin. And on and on and on. God is always faithful to show mercy and forgive sins. So what have we learned? Well, the first thing we've learned is that God's law was given as an act of love by God to his people. Number two, God's people responded in obedience. Number three, obedience to God's command was short-lived and temporary. And then the last thing we learned today is that God's relationship with his people has never been about perfection. In the midst of failure, he provides mercy and forgiveness. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? What are our our takeaways today. Here's what I, I've got a couple of takeaways here. For those of you who aren't Christians and still trying to figure this thing out, you don't get off scot-free. God's law is God's law for everyone. God's law is God's law for everyone in the entire world for all time since creation. People or cultures don't get to choose whether they want to be under God's law. They just simply are. And I know that's not popular to say, but it's true nonetheless. Disobedience to God's law always results in judgment on something or someone. And the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that Christ becomes the substitute for the Christian. Christ becomes the substitute for our disobedience. The non-Christian is going to bear that judgment on their own. And all the craziness that is called evangelicalism or Christianity today, I've got to emphasize this, that obedience matters. Obedience matters, people. There are a lot of people that call themselves Christian in our city, in our church, and maybe even in our city groups. And they don't understand what obedience is about. Obedience is a heart-level response born out of a very real understanding that God delivered you, that he rescued you, 
that he saved you from a destruction that was sure and an enemy that was very real. You're not going to do this thing perfectly. You're not going to obey perfectly. The good news is that no one has ever obeyed perfectly. No one has except for Jesus. So our confidence doesn't rest in our obedience. Our obedience is just an outflow of what God has done in us and for us. Our confidence actually rests in Christ and his perfect obedience. The good news here is that we don't have to live a life of perfect obedience. You see, Jesus already did that. He lived a perfect life in perfect obedience and the judgment that should be ours because of our disobedience, he took upon himself. The the perfect obedient one took on himself our imperfections and disobedience. There's no longer that shame that we have of feeling like we have to measure up. There's no longer the the, the feeling of being a fraud. There's no longer the pressure of performing perfectly. There's rest and there's forgiveness and there's mercy in Jesus. God's not changed, folks. He was the same in Exodus and he's the same today. He's a God of love and mercy and forgiveness that has executed our disobedience on Christ if we trust in him.